I want you to watch a little uh, Christmas commercial right now. All right, so keep your eye on this one. Every year on Christmas Eve, just before midnight, my dad and I take a walk. Just me and him. I can see him now, hear the crunch of his boots on the snow. Our breath would hang in the air as we'd trudge past the barn. My cheeks would get so red they'd start to hurt. Toes would be numb in my boots, but I'd never complain. Just try as best I could to follow in my dad's footsteps, never quite making it. Past Carter's Creek, and up that little rise that ran to the edge of the pine forest. We'd keep on in the moonlight till we made the clearing at the top of the hill. You could see the whole valley spread out below. And there we'd stand, the two of us, and wait for Christmas. This will be the first year I won't be able to come home and take that walk with my dad. But at least a part of me will be there. Wish we could be together for Christmas. No need to count the many miles that separate us now, because the memories we share will keep us close somehow. Merry Christmas. Love, Sarah. Merry Christmas. Hankies at the end of the row there, <laughs> if you need them. Does you just love Christmas commercials? Because Christmas on TV is always perfect. It's just perfect. I was watching TV the other day, which I rarely do. Usually I'm just memorizing scripture and praying. But I was watching TV and, uh, and, a, and a commercial came on. It was a young couple, like they were in their 30s. And they had like a 9,000 square foot house on a mountaintop. And it was Christmas. And he obviously had a secret for his wife. And so he blindfolds her. And he, have you seen this? And he walks her outside their palatial mansion. And there are two brand new uh, automobiles out there. A brand new truck and a brand new SUV. And then he takes the blindfold off. And she goes over to the truck and says, thank you. And he's like, like no, 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 the truck is mine. You can tell, like, the truck is mine. But then he adjusts real quickly, and he goes, well, well, Merry Christmas. And then he goes over, and he gets in the SUV. I mean, that's the way it is at my house every Christmas morning. <laughs> and you watch that, and you think, where do 30-year-olds get the money to buy a 9,000-square-foot house on a mountain and two brand-new cars for Christmas? This is not very realistic. Truth is, Christmas can be a really troubling time. Life can be hard. And, and uh, we're talking about Christmas hope, and we're getting our text from... Uh, Isaiah, from the gospel of Isaiah, uh, Christmas hope, and, and hope is a bright confidence of a future good. And in our first, uh, on the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about faithful waiting, and we used the text from Isaiah chapter 2, which points far into the future, really, at the millennial uh, reign of Christ. 
And then, and then last week, we looked at, and Pastor Leo was here, and he, was, and he took us to Isaiah 6 about what does God really look like? Uh, what's the future really look like? That gives us hope. What does God really look like? And that gives us hope. And I enjoyed watching that live from the West Coast. And then I went off to church after that. So I got lots of church. I went to church here. I went to Calvary Chapel. And I went to the Lutheran church last week. So anyway, that, if you see a glow about me, it's probably because I've just had so much church going on. What a, what a neat day today that it's been. And today we want to find another text in Isaiah. But before I read that, I want to read a piece of the Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew to you. This would be Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 to the end of the chapter. So just listen along as I read it, unless you're really fast or you have this memorized already. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now let's back up to verse 25. There's a quote from a prophet there. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's preceded in verse 22 by this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet class? That's right, Isaiah. So let's take a look at that prophecy today. It's in Isaiah 7. We've been in Isaiah 2. We've been in Isaiah 6. And now we move to Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah the prophet is given two prophecies for a king, a king of Judah, who is a bad king, King Ahaz. I'm going to read to you about uh, King Ahaz right now. And, and this is in another text of scripture in, in 2 Chronicles 28. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. You remember this Judah-Israel civil war? Generally, Judah good guys, uh, Israel bad guys. Um, and Ahaz is a king of Judah. Judah had some good kings, had some bad kings. Israel had no good kings. Okay, you, you remember that, right? So here's Ahaz, king of where? Judah, right? And he's a bad king. 
It says, he made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Some, some say made them pass through the fire. But you know when a culture gets so bad that they sacrifice their babies, it's a bad culture. He burned his sons in the offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings in high places on hills and under, under every green tree. This is meet Ahaz, a bad king of Judah. Now God is going to send Isaiah, the prophet, to Ahaz with a prophecy. That's what we find. He's going to give him two prophecies in, in, in Isaiah chapter 7. The first one, here's what it says in Isaiah 7.1. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, this guy we were just talking about, Ahaz, right? Son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not mount an attack against it. So do you see what's happening here? You've got a conspiracy of kings, one from Syria and one from Israel, and they're coming up against Judah. The purpose is they want to overcome them because they, they hope to fight together against a greater uh, threat, Assyria. This history lesson is going to be important in a minute. But just all you need to really think about is here are God's people with this faithless king. They're being, they're being threatened and they're, they're being besieged. And, and so it says, when the house of David was told, that's a way of referring to the people of Judah or, or Israel. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel here because the largest tribe of Israel is Ephraim. So again, it's just talking about Syria and Ephraim or Syria and Israel are against Judah. Is this making any sense? Track with me for a minute. What we're, what we're essentially saying here is the nation over which Ahaz is king is being seriously threatened. Notice what it says, how they respond. Um, and the heart of his people, this is in uh, verse 2, and the heart of his people, Ahaz's people, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, they were really afraid. Ever had a time when you were threatened and you were afraid? Here's how it works. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You're afraid. God's people had reason to be afraid. They had serious opposition against them. The king and the people were really afraid. This is the context in which God sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz in verse 3. And the Lord says to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub. This is his son. His, his son's uh, name means a remnant will return. Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit by the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. He's out probably checking uh, his water supply. Because you can go 40 days without food, but only about three days without water. And so a king is going to want to personally go out and say, how long, you know, is our water supply safe? How long are we going to be able to last since we're being besieged by an enemy? Say to him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it, let's conquer it for ourselves and set up 
the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. The head of Syria is Damascus, the, set, the head of Damascus is, is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's he essentially saying? This prophecy number one is this. I want you to know that these enemies of yours are like burnout logs. They are not going to last. You do not need to be afraid of them. He's saying to Ahaz, and he's saying collectively to the people of Israel, even though you are being besieged by this like dreadful enemy and you're shaking like a leaf, right? You don't need to be afraid because my prophecy is those are not, those, those nations are not going to last and they're not going to overcome you. You just need to do what? You need to trust me. You need to believe. This is the context of the prophecy that's given to Joseph. The next prophecy that's given is what we call the Emmanuel prophecy. And it starts there in verse 10. And by the way, um, so you have Assyria, uh, who's, the, who's the, um, the real uh, dangerous enemy. And one of the reasons that Ahaz is not going to get in league with these other nations is because he's already taken implements from uh, the, the worship of God and he's bribed Assyria. He's trying to make a deal with Assyria. He's working it to make a deal with Assyria. Uh, head of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, what he likes to do is it says here, he likes to put little kings in place. He wants to put a king in place over Judah that's not from the line of David and any decent king should have known there's not going to be a king on the throne of Judah that's not in the line of David. Because God says there's always going to be a king in the line of David. But he doesn't trust God's promises. He doesn't believe God's word. He would rather kind of finagle. He would rather kind of negotiate. Tiglath-Pileser puts little kings in place. And guess what he likes to be called? Because he puts little kings in place of all the lands that he conquers, he likes to be called the king of kings. And so in a, in a twist of irony, Isaiah frequently refers to the coming king as the king of kings. And so it is, you know, with us. We have things that threaten us, things that make us, keep us awake at night. Times that we're tempted not to believe the promises of God. It's the same for us. And God says, all you have to do is believe and trust me. And I will take care of your enemies. I have uh, had enemies. And I've been tempted to fight them on my own. And, I, and even sometimes awake in the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and the Lord says to me, I'm your older brother. Do you want me to take care of them or do you want to take care of them yourself? And then I'm always like, okay, you know, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You don't have enemies that are bigger than God. He prepares a table before me. Say it. In the presence of my enemies. He prepares a banquet before me. In the presence of my enemies. And you have enemies. You, you have uh, humans that sometimes are your enemies. And you are sometimes your worst enemy. Am I right? Ahaz, who is Ahaz's worst enemy? Ahaz, right? It wasn't, he, it wasn't these other kings. It was his biggest problem would be he would not believe the promises of God. That's what he needed to fear more than anything else. We need to fear more than anything else a lack of confidence in the promises of God. 
more than any other. And so we're our own worst enemy when we don't believe what God said. And then there's the arch enemy of our souls and of Jesus and of the church and of the kingdom of God and of everything that's good, Satan. And when God came in Jesus Christ in the Christmas story incarnate and he lived a perfectly sinless life and when he died on the cross and when he was buried and rose again, he conquered the arch enemy of our souls. There is no great enemy in the world greater than our God. And that's why when we're tempted to tremble, when we're threatened by enemies, or when we're our own worst enemy, or when we fear the arch enemy of our soul, we need to realize that our, our God is, is the ultimate conqueror, and we are more than conquerors, even if we're kneeling before the one that would slit our throat, we say, we're about to go to heaven here and live forever with our king. And, that, and that's the, the first message. But the second message, uh, the second prophecy that's given is in Isaiah 7 and verse 10. And this is really an interesting prophecy. And it's the one that, he, that the angel was referring to, to Joseph in the dream. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And he says through Isaiah, right? Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Here, here's how I understand this. God says through Isaiah to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Talk to me, Ahaz. Talk to me. Don't make a deal under the table with Assyria, right? Talk to me. Ask me to show myself. Ask me to show myself. Ask a big sign. Ask me for anything. High as the heaven, deep as hell. Ask me for something. And you know what Ahaz says? I'm not going there. Ahaz says, I'm not going there. I don't want to do that. Like he would rather depend on his own resources than he would depend on the promises of God. I mean, I'm not that way. I'm never that way, right? You're never that way, right? You'd never, it's like, you'd never depend on your own resources before you would depend on the promises of God, would you? This is what we're talking about. He says, I want you to ask a sign. And he goes, oh, no. He says in pseudo-piety, oh, no, no. I don't want to tempt the Lord, which sounds really cool. A lot of times people say all kinds of cool, theologically neat-sounding things when they really don't want to trust the Lord. <laughs> he says, Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, a virgin will conceive. That's kind of shocking. I mean, you've heard that a lot, but that just doesn't happen very often. Get it? Have you ever heard of that happening? Well, in, this, in the Bible, yes. A virgin will conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. We know that this is interpreted there in Matthew as what? God with us. God is with us. God is with us. When the whole world is against us, is the idea. When all the nations are lining up at the border, ready to consume you, you might want to keep in mind, God is with you. And, and so he, and, and then the, the prophecy goes on. And so we know this. We know that this prophecy is ultimately about who? It's about Jesus. Remember, the Sunday school answer. Always say Jesus first, and you're usually going to be right. Yeah? It's about Jesus. The prophecy is about Jesus. We know this because Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us about 
Joseph's encounter with an angel, with an angel in a dream, and the angel says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. You, you, of course, you have the other question that comes to mind, and that is, in the day of Ahaz, did this have a near referent? Did it refer to somebody then? And Bible scholars actually kind of uh, arm wrestle about this. You can actually spend hours arm wrestling about this. You can spend hours studying this. And Pastor Leo and I actually exchanged a few texts over this this week. Just kind of like, it's kind of like what guys do. It's, it's sort of like playing marbles for pastors. It, like, what, well, who is that? And some scholars, uh, Bible scholars, will say, well, this would be the second son of Isaiah, whose name is really long. You can look it up. May, hair, hal, shas, bas. I mispronounced that, but you can forgive me, right? It's the second son of Isaiah. Somebody says, that's who it is. A little bit later, maybe that's who it is. Maybe Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, and it's Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, that is the near referent of this Emmanuel prophecy. Maybe it's another child. Some Bible scholars say there's no near referent at all. I have trouble believing that one. Some say there's no near referent. There's no dual fulfillment prophecy. It's just Jesus is the, is the, the ultimate and only referent of this prophecy. I tend to believe there is a, this is a dual fulfillment prophecy. You see them commonly in the Bible. When a prophecy gives a, a prophecy, a prophet gives a prophecy and it has a near referent that's a partial fulfillment of the prophecy and it has a far referent which is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. And you see this in Isaiah often, later we're going to study, well even in this text, this is Isaiah 7 and you keep reading, it's all one story through Isaiah 7 and, and 8 and 9 and when you get to Isaiah 9, listen to how this child Emmanuel is described in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform, will accomplish this. This is, a, this is obviously nothing that happened in Isaiah's time. It's nothing that has happened yet. You, you see what I'm saying? And so you have in Isaiah, you have prophecies that there was a near referent that happened in that time. That, that also had a far referent that happened in the first advent when Jesus came and some in the second advent when Jesus comes back again. In Isaiah 61, Jesus is going to preach from this text in his hometown and he's going to quote part of the text. He quotes the part of the text that has to do with the first advent and then he stops in the middle because the next part of the text has to do with when he's coming back. I say all this to say that in the Bible, sometimes a prophet will give a prophecy and it will have a dual fulfillment, a near and impartial fulfillment and a far and complete fulfillment. My theory is I'm on the side of the guys who think, the men and women who believe this is a dual fulfillment prophecy, but it obviously we know this. This is what we know that we know. We know that this is talking about Jesus because the Holy Spirit told us that through Matthew. How, how wonderful is that to think that God gave a prophecy that there's going to be a son, he's going to come, and this son is going to be called God with you. Spurgeon said of this passage, I kind of enjoyed this. He said, this, this is considered one of the most difficult in all the word of God. It may be so. I certainly did not think it was until I saw what the commentators had to say about it. You ever have that experience? 
I understood the Bible. Then I read the commentaries. Now I'm really confused. Yeah, some old saw once said, I found the Bible sheds a lot of light on the commentaries sometimes. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. We know this is a prophecy of Jesus that was given over almost 700 years before he came. We know, listen, this is important. Do you ever think, oh, God made promises he hasn't kept to me yet. Okay, just wait 700 years and see what happens. Wait 100 years. Wait 50 years. You say, I waited a long time. That usually means, you know, 15 minutes for us. Um, but God keeps his promises over time, and he waits to fulfill his promises to just the right time. So this is about Ahaz. Let's go back and let's, so we talked about Ahaz and us. Let's talk about Joseph and us. Let's go back to, to Matthew chapter 1, and let's talk a little bit about Joseph. And this is really interesting because Joseph here has a, 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 he's betrothed to a woman who he, he loves because he's a just man and, and she's obviously a, a pure, godly woman. And then he finds out she's going to have a baby and he knows that he didn't contribute to that. And so his heart is broken and he, against his very nature, thinks, well, I'm going to have to break this off. And then, mercifully, he has the angel visitation in a dream explaining to him why his pure uh, wife-to-be is with child. And this is amazing. And it refers back to this prophecy that his child, his stepchild, if you will, is going to be the virgin-born son of God. Now, this wouldn't be difficult, would it? Explaining to your friends. The guys down at the coffee house would all go, oh, no problem, thanks for clearing that up right? They would all, they would go, yeah, that happens all the time. All right. Thanks for sharing. I, I imagine that we know that in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus throughout his life was mocked because of this claim in the darkest of terms. And, and his pure mother, Mary, who is obedient to God and blessed of God and revered throughout time, Jesus, her savior, she bore her own savior into the world was was mocked and made fun of because of this and that wouldn't be the only trouble they faced because in 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 his time there is an occupying force in his nation right the romans are an occupying force they they rule with the with a martial kind of a law right and and they can they can take the lives of little ones in the in the village where jesus was born herod who is this despot that's put in place by rome and he's got this hatred there he actually finds out there's a there may be a rival to his throne and so he has the slaughter of the innocents remember this story there's the slaughter of the little two and under all the boys two and under in that area joseph lived in under the shadow of the dark homicidal sick hatred of herod if you visit the holy land you will visit a place out within sight of bethlehem called the herodian the herodian is a is one of the many fortresses of herod that he had people when you tour the holy land they they do something irritating the tour guide always says you go herod built this herod built that Herod built it. It always irritated me when they would say that. And I'm like, who am I? I'm just the guy there taking notes. But Herod didn't build anything. Herod's slaves built everything. That's all, I wanted to say that. Herod's slaves built Masada. Herod's slaves built the Herodian out there within sight of Bethlehem. 
and it's a huge like man-made mountain and on top of this huge man-made mountain which you can actually tour which we toured and you could climb down into the bowels the cavernous bowels of this place this huge man-made fortress would have been crowned if you will with with a a place where the a barracks where the soldiers would have been quartered the very soldiers no doubt that came and, and swept into bethlehem one night and murdered all the little baby boys joseph lived under this threat when he walked outside at night at Bethlehem and he looked out into the night sky he would have seen the lights of the Herodian glowing and the threats of Rome and of Herod against him and he would no doubt have trembled remember this soon after Jesus was born they had to flee they became refugees to Egypt it's not uncommon for Christians to face enemies it's not uncommon for us to be threatened it's not uncommon for someone to threaten to harm us and for us to be threatened and to be fearful, to tremble, or to be troubled like Joseph was troubled. He had a lot of things that would trouble him, right? He was troubled. Have you ever been troubled? You have anything that troubles you right now? Been away from you for 10 days and I missed you, but I thought about you every day. And I thought a lot about like, well, what troubles the people of the Bethel church? What troubles do you have? Are you troubled with a fear of the future are you troubled with a, a particularly dark besetting sin are you troubled with loneliness are you troubled with desires that are unmet are you troubled with anxiety are you troubled with depression are you troubled with poverty or unemployment or underemployment are you troubled with you know ill health or the specter of ill health in the future or a child that's confused or a wayward son or a daughter what troubles you we're all troubled aren't we and we all go back to this like, wait a minute, God, hundreds of years ago, made a promise that he was going to come and he was going to take over everything and we could be a part of his benevolent kingdom. What we need to do when we're troubled, what we need to do when we're threatened is believe the promises of God. Because when we believe the promises of God, then hope rises up in us and hope is a bright confidence of a future good. What do we need? We need to meditate on the promises of God. What did Ahaz need to do? He needed to believe God's promises that he'd made. What did Joseph need to do? The angel came to remind him, Joseph, believe the promises of God. This is going to get really good. They're going to be talking about this for centuries, for all of eternity. They're going to be talking. They're going to be singing songs. They're going to be dancing dances about this for all of eternity. Joseph, believe me. And he says the same thing to us. At Bethel, believe me and trust me. I've given you my promises. I've included you. I've swept you into my promises. Don't doubt what I said. Don't change the Bible. Let the Bible change you. We live in a world that when people, many who want to call themselves Christians, want to change the Bible. Right? This is what's happening. Went to Atlanta. Was speaking. I met a young man there, dressed like a girl, darkly troubled. Darkly troubled. I went to spoke there that night and and i thought about this i asked the pastor about this young young man he's like obviously wrestling through a gender confusion problem and i went to bed that night thinking about that fellow and my heart was heavy for him and i prayed as i went to sleep god what do you tell a person with such a problem people like this often want to take their own lives people like this often say the church isn't a help to them 
People like this often will say, I only feel condemned if Christian people know the dark thing that I wrestle with, the dark confusion that I struggle with. And people like this, there are people who call themselves Christians who come along and they say, well, don't worry about it. We're going to change the Bible and we're going to say, you're okay. That's not hopeful. As I lay in my bed and I prayed, you know, through the night, how, what would I say to help a young man like this? This is what came to my heart. And I'm sure there'll be other answers from the scriptures that will come, but this is what came to my heart. In the, in the Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, it, it, over and over again, it, it gives a message to the churches, the seven churches of Asia, and then a message to the church overall. And over and over again, it says, those who overcome, I will reward in different ways. In every one of the messages to the churches, it says, if you overcome. It's as if we are going to have to live a struggle. It's as if we're going to have dark temptations that trouble us. Who here would say, I have never been troubled by a dark temptation? Who here would say, I live in perfect obedience to God, and I never have a, a dark uh, temptation cross the threshold of my life? Who could honestly ever say that? We couldn't say that. And for this, we have the promises of God. And we don't change the word. We let the word and through the Holy Spirit transform us. This is the hope of a broken, dark, confused world that we live in. That's the message that we have. No, you aren't what you are going to be, but you can trust the promises of God and persevere. And one day when you overcome and you burst into the presence of God, all those dark temptations will be gone. Can I get an amen, church? All those dark temptations will be gone. All those struggles and confusions that, that make us want to even despair, that despair is the opposite of hope, you see. This is what Satan wants. He wants to drive us to despair. He wants us to think our enemies are too big for us. Our problems are too big for us. Our temptations are too big for us. The people that have lined up, I can't overcome this. And then he says to us, don't change the Bible. Let the Bible change you. I I will set you free. That's what he says to us. This is what we want to remember. In a world that's pretty threatened, it's probably important for us. In, you know, there are teachers that you watch on TV. They're prosperity teachers. You know, I don't pick on them very often. You know that, right? I haven't done that. I, I want to say this, though. That, that prosperity teaching is an error. And here's why I'm, I'm telling you this. All, you read the Bible. All throughout the Bible, the saints suffer. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, the Bible says. Suffering is to be expected in a fallen world. So if we get in, if we sign up on the dotted line, we go, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. And we think what this means is that, you know, we, we have these wonderful stories of God's provision and his kindness, his deliverance. These things are true. But maybe, but then sometimes God will say, uh, you, you know, I, your delivery is going to be through death. Y your, your calling is going to be to suffer. Uh, your your the way we describe following Jesus is take up the cross and follow me. And Jesus even said at one point, take up the cross daily. I mean, it's one thing to say, take up the cross. It sounds like, okay, I got to steal myself and be ready to die a martyr's death. And he goes, no, you have to do that every day. Oh, how does that work? But it means there's going to be a little suffering along the way all the time. Life is suffering. Aging is suffering. There's suffering all around us. Let's not ignore it. And God doesn't ignore us. The Bible doesn't ignore it. So when we're threatened with suffering, like the world, the church in the world is threatened with suffering. Think about, think around the world, just briefly, think about China. Today in China, today in China, they're, they're coming into churches and they're saying, we want 
we want you to allow us to place a, a camera facing the audience so that we can do facial recognition on all the people that come to your church. This is happening in China today. Uh, pastors that won't do this are being imprisoned in China today. Christians are being registered in China today. There's, that's just the mild part of it. It's worse in Africa. There are places in Africa where Boko Haram comes sweeping through the village and they take captive everybody and they kill all the men and some of the women and some of the useful younger women, they're kept for slavery. This is this week in Africa, this week, a beautiful young woman in Africa was captured with a number of other young women and, and they all recanted for being followers of Christ, except for this one. They let all of them go, except this one who would not recant her faith, and now she's a slave. This is happening right now. Merry Christmas, right? So, so the prosperity theology doesn't have a category for this, but the Bible does. And the Bible says that God will accomplish his purposes over time, sometimes through suffering, and that we want to endure and have hope based on the promises of God. That's the idea here. And this is Isaiah, it's just full, so full of this. And so it is true in Egypt. Uh, my son was talking with a man from China who is a missionary to Egypt. And my son was talking about, you know, whether Christians should arm themselves. And some of the guys in his church were all rah-rah about the arming themselves. And some of the guys in his church were, so, were not so excited about arming themselves. We're not going to vote here today. But the, 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 the missionary says in Egypt, because you'd like it in Egypt because, you know, especially around Christmas time, um, it's very, very dangerous to be a Christian church in Egypt. Especially around Christmas time, you know, you hear about it every Christmas day. There's, they're going to find a place where Christians gather and they're going to bomb it on Christmas day. He said, he says, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, the Chinese missionary, very godly man, says, you, you, you would like being a Christian in Egypt. Everybody carries a gun there. So there's suffering there and there's suffering here. And if there isn't suffering now, there's going to be suffering probably sometime soon. I, uh, I like Anne of Green Gables. You can tar and feather me later for that. Anne of Green Gables, Lucy Mob Montgomery was a Presbyterian pastor's wife, and she wrote these books for little girls, but I'll give you a, a little hint. They're awesome to read. Anne of Green Gables, can I get a witness here anywhere? You start looking at me like I'm leaving now. There's this part in Anne, you remember Anne is an orphan. She's an orphan. They call for a little boy, and the orphan mistakenly sends this little red-haired girl. And she's at the train station. Remember this? And Matthew and Marilla are brother and sister. And they're all, you know, spinster widow. They, spinster uh, unmarried people. Uh, they send Matthew to the rail station. He picks up this. He's shocked to find this little precocious, red-haired, bright, verbal orphan girl sitting there. And they, he brings her home. And Marilla says, we didn't want a girl. We wanted a boy. And then she waxes poetic, I'm in the depths of despair. She says, as she's getting ready for bed, she says, I'm in the depths of despair. And then she asks Marilla, Marilla, can you imagine what it would be like to be in the depths of despair? And Marilla says, I cannot, because the despair is to turn your back on God. But to hope is to turn your face to God and to believe that what he said is true. And Christmas is a time of hope and not a time of despair.
because we don't turn our back on God. We turn our face to God and we say, Lord, even though my son is struggling, my face is turned to you, God. Even though I'm aging, I'm trusting in your promises, God. Even though things around me are sad and heartbreaking, broken, they're not the way they ought to be. There's a bright day coming when Jesus is going to step into this mess. And he's going to make it all right. We have the promises of God. And I'm going to trust the promises of God. Christmas can be a hard time to trust the promises of God. You know, it gets pretty thick. You've got the in-laws coming over. You've got the weird demons that visit at Christmas time. Does this happen in your house? Weird demons visit at Christmas time? Yeah, let's be honest. You, you think, I don't, I'm not talking about your brother-in-law. I mean, he's bad. He's not a demon, right? I mean, it's not that bad. I'm just talking about the weird stuff that happens when we idealize Christmas and sentimentalize Christmas. And we say, we expect it to have the perfect Christmas. And the snow's got to come now. No, not now, but now. And not that kind of snow, this kind of snow. And the, and the music plays. And you know, like the perfect person sweeps into your life at just the perfect time. And it's the perfect Christmas. But it's never that way. It's never going to be that way. <laughs> we as a family went to... Have a, we went on a trip at Christmas time once, and, and then um, on the way back, things kind of came unraveled. It, it wasn't funny. It was, it was sad. It was just hard. You know, it just wasn't going good. And now we're driving, and everybody's really quiet. Nobody's talking. Because we know if we talk, we're going to argue. And if we argue, then the kids are going to be hurt. And after all, it's Christmas, right? And, and we're thinking, we don't have any good reason to have this tension in our family right now. Why is this? I can't untangle it. I'm a pastor. I counsel other people. Sometimes I leave tension at home to go to the church to help people with tension in their marriages. Are you surprised about this? You're all really quiet right now. <laughs> Sometimes it's the best thing in the world, go help other people and then go back and do for your wife what you told that other guy to do for his wife. It's <laughs> wonderful. So I'm driving home and my heart is just, like aching and, and the whole the van load of kids is just totally quiet and nobody's saying anything and we're just driving on hour after hour and honestly the thought that kind of the dark thought that crossed my heart was like and I was really young then how are we even going to make it as a family and then right about that time when I thought that there was this sign by the side of the road and it said, it's kind of corny. I thought it was kind of a corny cliche, but that day it said, the family that prays together stays together. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll pray. And then I drove on a little bit farther and I drove under a bridge. Somebody had taken a spray can and had spray painted on the bridge, trust Jesus. Normally I would think, how irresponsible for somebody to take a spray paint and paint on the bridge, trust Jesus. But when I read it, it was like, yes. And two or three times along that stretch of road, somebody had gone up, uh, taken that spray can and spray painted, trust Jesus. And my heart was encouraged. Listen, how much more should our hearts be encouraged when we can build our lives on the very promises of God, how much more? I'd like to ask you to stand with me just for a moment. We're going to have a word of prayer in a moment. I, I have some folk I'd like to call forward. We're going to do something here.